if your world is defined by all of these artificial constructs, then how coherent can your thinking be? Even going back to education, there's a big piece of not being so linear in your thought, not trying to control everything. Uh, there needs to be time for unorganized play, for example. Right now, the narrative is that it's all about me. We are stewards of the earth. We own the earth. You know, we have dominion over earth. That's the story that people are telling themselves nowadays. But as, as we've done before, we could tell different stories. Our story could be that we're all related. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Joe Rice. Joe is the co-founding director of Philips Indigenous Education Network, which specializes in holistic learning for well-being rooted in nature. Now, the mission of Philips Indian educators is to dramatically improve education for Native American students by ensuring that all educators of Native American students are knowledgeable enough to competently incorporate Indigenous best practices into their teaching and to continuously work towards a Native consensus of what those best practices are and should be. I met you at a workshop that uh, I led with uh, Charlotte Hankin, Maggie Favretti, uh, Till Jaspers, uh, entitled Rerooting Sustainability Education, Exploring Regenerative Practices, and Joe's one of our wonderful speakers. And I was struck at the time by his humility and his wisdom and insights. The fact that he opened us up to thinking in nonlinear ways. We discussed a bit what nonlinear sequentiality might look like and how this might fall within the indigenous worldview, depending on our approach, but certainly there was an invitation to do so and to remember what our indigenousness, our indigeneity might be like, how we come from indigenous roots, all of us. And this is a lot of what this conversation is about, about remembering, about going back, about appreciating the world for what it is, not the illusions that it might be. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design, where you find articles and links to this podcast and resources and so forth. And in the meantime, I will leave space for my conversation with Joe. Well, hi, Joe. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, I'm so incredibly grateful that we were able to meet at the Sustainability Conference about a month ago. And I was really struck and interested by the way you presented um, this idea of uh, nonlinearity, of uh, sequential nonlinearity. And I'd love to explore that a bit further, as well as your work in Indigenous education. But before we do so, I'll ask you the question that uh, we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Okay. Well, you know, my name is Joe Rice. I'm, a, I'm Choctaw. I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, my grandfather relocated to Chicago in the 1930s. Um, and so I grew up there, pretty far away from my um, indigenous culture. And so one of the things that I always wanted to, to do growing up was to get away from that place and, uh, and you know, learn, learn my culture and find out, uh, you know, I guess to flesh it out. I knew, I knew some things. I knew enough to know that I didn't want to be where I was and I didn't want that culture. But I didn't know, um, you know, more than that. So that was my journey from from a young age, and then uh, that's been a real big part of my life. And I've been an educator now for almost forty years. I think thirty nine years this year. Um, I've taught and I've been an administrator. 
And uh, lately I've been doing a lot of um, uh, presentations on indigenous education. Uh, we confined, we convened a group for the last, God, what was it? Since 2004, we convened an educators group twice a month um, until I left and they're still doing it. But I mean, I did that. We did that for the longest time. And, and what we really talked about was um, what indigenous education uh, could look like and should look like and how we can best serve our native kids. You know, and that would be finding out how they learn and then and then um, and then teaching them accordingly. Uh, so that's been my big interest, my big passion for the last 20 years, I guess. Um, I'm also an athlete. I've also played a lot of uh, competitive sports up until recently. And body's too beat up now to do it anymore. But I did that for a long time, too. And I don't say that to talk about exploits or anything, just to say that's uh, just a big part of who I have been and you know, was for a long time. And currently I'm a, I'm a science teacher again, you know, so I, I've taught and I've been an administrator for the last 21 years. And now I'm, I'm about, uh, let's see, I guess about six or seven months into teaching again. Uh, and trying to put into practice all the things that I've learned and um, and also trying to figure out how a, a more of a mainstream system works because I've been doing what we would call alternative education for a long time. So I don't know. Did, did that answer your first question? Yeah, it did. And, uh, and I certainly want to get into the idea of what uh, an indigenous education could and should look like. Uh, but before I do so, I'll ask you the question that we ask all our guests, which is, how do you define learning? Well, I came across a, a quote once that really encapsulates um, for me what education is. And so I wish I could say it was my own words, but it's not. And I'm not even sure who to attribute it to. Hang on, I'll look. I'll, I have the quote here in front of me, and I was just going to look and see if I could get the name off of that quote. Nope, I cannot read it. <laughs> But anyways, here, here is the quote that I really like. Um, it's about as close as I've come to being able to say it succinctly. And it was, uh, intelligence is the capacity to perceive the essential, the what is, and to awaken this capacity in, your, in oneself and in others is education. And to me, that means... Um, I guess it would be it has a lot to do with helping people to to learn how to think coherently about life, about the universe, the world we live in, all those things, uh, and realizing that they're all part of the same thing. You know, that the universe sounds like to many people it sounds like something really distant, far away, but of course it's not. We're smack in the middle of it, and so getting people to understand that and then to um, to understand the nature of that and then and what the implications are for us as humans and then to figure out how to live our lives better and, and so if that's education what is learning learning is the journey um not the destination it's the journey that's how i see it you know learning is the way we live our life um 24 hours a day actually 
you know, our, our senses are really about gathering information, right? And that's what they serve for us to help us to, you know, going back to the earliest stages of living, you know, it's really about um, finding food and avoiding danger, maybe, you know. Um, but our senses, the, their purpose has always been to, to gather information. And so just naturally throughout our lives, uh, we're doing that. We're gathering information. And I think then learning is, you know, has so many different, um, there's so many different aspects to learning. Um, in, uh, in mainstream society, you know, it's the focus is on learning from someone. But I think there are other ways to learn. You know, I, I, I should say I know there are other ways to learn. And learning from others is certainly valuable and important, but it's not the only way. So learning is, to me, it, it, it's, um, it's life itself. You know, I, you know it's, it's many things. You know, it's um, paying attention to what's going on around us. It's learning from others. It's, it's singing. It's hearing stories. It's telling stories. Uh, it's investigating things that interest us. Um, it's just about everything that you can think of that we could possibly do um, is an opportunity, you know, to, to grow in knowledge, to, to gain more wisdom, to become wiser, perhaps smarter. And so I think of learning then essentially as gathering information, you know, but with, you know, and I think the hard part for kids sometimes is, they're given such a limited scope of, uh, you know, for the meaning of learning, you know. So they're taught that it means uh, sitting at a desk maybe and listening to other people talk. You know, and for them that is um, mind-numbing because many of our kids especially, you know, they learn by doing, you know. So again, it goes back to learning is, is everything. Does, does that make sense or am I getting too far out there? No, 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 no. It makes complete sense. And, and I guess what uh, strikes me here is that relational side, because when you gather information, you gather information from someone or something, and there has to be that relationality behind it rather than the accumulation, uh, or as Paulo Freire says, like the banking system of, uh, of school. And, and, I, and I wonder if this is... Maybe we can just go back a little bit and, and talk about your time in Chicago and how uh, you were brought up and, and, and maybe some of the cultural roots that you had and, and what made you say that you didn't want to be part of that, which I think are the words that you use that the part of Chicago and, and, and some of the experiences that you've had there, maybe with the, with the leaning towards school, but maybe just within the, the, the city as a whole and your experience as a whole. Just comment on that or, or tell us those stories. Well, Chicago is, you know, good and bad. It's dark and light. There's plenty of darkness there, you know, plenty of danger, plenty of anger, plenty of hatred and uh, prejudice, those kind of things, violence. I experienced those as a young person. And, um, and trauma affects you, you know, when you're, especially when you're younger, you, you don't quite know why it's happening, but you know, it hurts. <laughs> um, and so I had a lot of, um, perhaps bad memories of that place, you know, and I needed to get away. But also there was an homogenization of people that goes on in a big city. So um, for one thing, there were very few natives there, but for, but the other thing was just that our cultural point of view is so um, 
or maybe our cultural focus is so unique and so um, outside of the American mainstream um, that there aren't many people who really understand or people who I found that I could uh, really relate to. Um, and I guess the other the other part to that was just that going through that, I knew that there would be strength that I would learn and learn things I would learn about myself and strengths I could develop uh, from my own um, from my culture that I couldn't get from whatever that Chicago culture was. You know, I, I um, you know, it's it's a relatively young and, and perhaps an unwise culture. You know, and it's based on commercialism and materialism, maybe, and and even violence, you know. Uh, and it's kind of a normalization of those things. And I wanted to be in a situation where those weren't the norms, you know, where the norms were, um, you know, um, functional relationships and uh, and people being accepted for who they are. And... Um, you know, and uh, I don't know, I guess the other part would be maybe just the freedom to to live as one chooses to live, you know. Um, it's just so outside of the mainstream where everyone's expected to do, you know, everyone's expected to work for a living and to think along those lines, you know. Um, not that there's anything wrong with work, I'm just saying that. There is almost an, an an acceptance of something I might call drudgery, a normalization of that and an acceptance of that. I just think it goes back to the colonization of the world, you know, that began maybe 10,000 years ago or so. And um, and so, you know, in, in the modern sense, I guess, um, colonization is equated with civilization, you know? and and it's normalized in that way. So the idea that you would conquer people and take things from them by force and that the world would be turned into commodities and people would even become commodities and all of that, um, you know, it's very dehumanizing. And um, man, I just just really needed to get away from all of that. Um, and And so I guess that's a very long answer, but that would be the reason that I wanted to leave that place. I didn't feel like I was going to get the answers I needed, um, you know, for how to live my life there. As a matter of fact, I knew I wouldn't, you know, it just wasn't the place I was willing to accept if answers that came from there even. So I had to go. And so what happened when you left? Oh, lots of good things. You know, I went to, uh, I went to the Twin Cities first. I went to school there. I made a lot of new friends. I connected with other natives there, which was really good. There was a strong program there for native students. So it was providing support for native students. So they had a little bit of financial support, you know, for things we might need. But the biggest support was that was the, the sense of the community that we developed among ourselves there. That was the biggest piece of support that we all felt we needed, you know, that needed to be in each other's company um, because maybe this sounds, I don't know, some kind of way, but for me, it seems that there are many people who don't know how to 
relate in an easy way to other people. You know, they're they're awkward or or um, a, a stiff, um, inflexible, maybe um, very set in their ways, or very just maybe self-limiting and not realizing that if they let things be once in a while, that you know, there's so much potential in doing that. You know, there's so many more things you could learn if you rather than try to change the world or mold it if you let it be what it is and then you learn how to accept it and i don't mean the world of the you know the, not going back to that colonized structure i mean the actual world you know so the world outside of all of the illusions you know so we talked about this with a friend the other day there are these illusions like money money has value has intrinsic value or our land is divided into properties you know, or time is divided into seconds. These are illusions. You know, these are not reality. And I'm talking about like the actual nature of the universe. You know, if you, if your world is defined by all of these artificial constructs, then how coherent can your thinking be? Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And, and these are narratives that are told in order to keep a certain culture, a certain civilization together. The idea of money, the idea of time, it, it keeps that place together. It doesn't mean that it keeps reality together by any stretch, or at least not reality with capital R, of which there's probably not any such thing anyway. I, I am curious about, and, and curious rather wanting to, to explore this idea of not wanting to change the world, but rather accept it. Now, this is... Um, this will will find resistance because people are always talking about being activists, always like you can change the world. It is our duty to change the world. We're youth. What what do you mean by that? Not changing the world, rather accepting it in a world that promotes and, and, and glorifies activism so much. Well, I think that when they talk about the world, they're talking about a layer of illusion that's separate from the world. You know, it's like an overlay on a on a transparency you know you get those maps with the overlays and each one is different it's like you're like they're on one overlay and reality is a different one or something like that you know but i get the feeling that when they say the world they mean the world that they have grown up in so again that would be that that colonized version of life you know that's what they mean the world you know what i mean and so changing the world would be changing that artificial structure you know and so it, you know it would that in itself is kind of, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of, um, in some ways, I'm not, I'm not knocking activists, but I think in some ways, it means they're going to, they're just going back to the same place. They're just uh, maybe painting it a different color, you know. But I, when, I'm, when I'm speaking of the world, then I'm, th I'm thinking of like uh, the actual world, you know, minus all of the illusions that I just talked about. So the actual world, I know that. You know, they like politically and economically and things like that, um, you know, things could be done better, no doubt about it. And 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 that would change the world of men for sure. But the deeper world, the world that everything on this planet lives in, that's a whole different thing. That world never needed changing, really, not much. You know, it wasn't perfect by any stretch, but may, perhaps it was perfectly imperfect. But it didn't need change, and it certainly didn't. I don't know that mankind has benefited from trying to control it so much. As a matter of fact, I would say they now we look at everything and we can see a long path of doing this and, and where it's led us to today, you know, where we've tried to reorder the world 
um, you know, to make it more comfortable and convenient for us. But have we made it better? Well, no, that probably wasn't possible, but definitely not made it better, right? I mean, we know now that, for instance, if you just look at, um, if you look at water, if you take, if you take, if you find a map that shows all the areas in the United States that have water issues, you know, continental North America that have water issues, and you put a red dot for every one of those places, the whole map is red, basically. You know what I mean? So what I'm getting at is, no, they haven't made it better. It was actually better before, you know. Am, am I straying too far there? At all, at all. And and I guess the follow-up question is, but what about those people who want to clean up the water, who want to make sure that we have clean water? It, what, what reality or what layer are they working with? Well, I think cleaning up the water is great, but I also think that developing or reestablishing an ethic that doesn't destroy the water in the first place is just as important, right? You know, so yeah, it's great. We, yeah, we will have to clean up the water, but, and we, and we, there are changes we can make for the better. But I think a lot of times what I'm seeing from a lot of environmental scientists now is that if they allow uh, the natural processes to take place, that some of them are almost self-remedying. You know, they take care of themselves over time. Do you remember during the COVID shutdown how clean the air got? You know, it wasn't because, you know, they were running big air filters all over the place. It was because there weren't as many cars running, right? And there wasn't as much pollution going into the air. You know, businesses were slowing down. And I remember them saying, you know, talking about L.A., just how clear the air got there. And they were, you know, they were marveling at it. And it was a brief window into what would happen if if we did that um, every day. You know, if we if human consciousness suddenly changed and then everybody started just understanding that there's an ethic to living on this planet there are rules for living on this planet or as a friend of mine once said there's a way to live with earth and a way not to live with earth you know and right now mankind overall is kind of living in a way that doesn't work you know now it's not to say that they have to be what's the word you know i hate i hate these words like this but not to say they have to go around hugging trees you know exactly you know especially if they're not sincere about it you know but I think it does point to the fact that that humans um, do have, you know, the the potential. You know, it really amounts to what if everybody stopped doing things the way they're doing now and did them differently. And one of the things I think about is what if um, what if everybody stopped looking at their phone ten hours a day? What if everybody stopped watching TV? What if people understood what it's doing to their bodies and to their brains, you know, and just woke up one day and decided to change? You know, if everybody stopped buying a certain product, you know, it's not made anymore. Or uh, Arundhati Roy has a quote, a quote about that. She said something like, you know, the minute we stop buying their, uh, you know, their assumptions and their notions of inevitability, the world starts to change. Something like that. I can't remember the entire quote, but it was a great quote that. Um, you know, that basically said the power in, in humans is still, uh, you know, you know the, the potential is still there. I know that, um, at least I, I understand that the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea is one of the most biodiverse places um, in, in that entire region now because it's been left alone. Ah, uh, how about that? 
an, another hint, right? Another sign, you know, that yes, change is possible. Um, you know, but as long as people's goals maybe are to acquire lots of money and lots of property, uh, you know, if that's a, if that's the goal of, you know, if that's the ideal in front of a lot of people, the world won't change very fast. But um, if people's goal was to to talk to other people, you know, to get together in gatherings and to eat food and share and laugh and talk and communicate, what if we did that every day? Um, you know, if that was people's goal to live with other people successfully, the world would look, would look could look a lot different. Perhaps in this case, people are, are kin could be the more than human world, the animal world, mm -hmm. the plant yeah. world, and live there as well, just going beyond mm -hmm. the human. Well, that's the coolest thing I think about maybe indigenous cultures all over the world, you know, is that they have a lot of those understandings and a lot of the, what you might call methodology built into the culture in such ways that it's not obvious, but yet time and time again, when we practice these things, we see the effects they have, you know, uh, even simple things like storytelling, the effects can be far reaching, you know, and Daniel Quinn talks about the impact of stories. Have you ever read Ishmael? Uh, I have not, but I've heard about it and, and how important stories are and how they even uh, release oxytocin and dopamine in our minds and, and all these chemicals that are similar to how, to, to what floods a, a, a mother and a baby's uh, brain and bodies, really, when, uh, when they're breastfeeding. It just creates connections naturally. Yeah, right. And, and so I think, you know, even going back to education, there's a big piece of not being so linear in your thought, not trying to control everything. Uh, there needs to be time for unorganized play, for example. You know, not to say that that... Um, that you know, academic study doesn't have its place. Of course, it does, but there needs to be time for unstructured things too. You know, there needs to be time for kids to be kids. You know, they. Uh, some people think that the purpose of a kid is to grow up, right? But the real purpose of a kid is to be a kid, or a child is to be a child. You know, you know, they're only going to be that for a while, uh, and then when they grow up, they you know they. You know, sometimes they become the kind of adults that don't really help. You know, maybe it's because they weren't uh, children enough. So, so I think of these snow days that schools have and they close down. And maybe before COVID, they would have uh, had a certain way. But now we can go online. And, and I think of the images that we had when we were children, when there's a snow day. It was great. You go outside, you have snowball fights. That's play. But now on snow days, that's taken away because we're in front of our computers back at school, so to speak, virtually. So the system is already stopping us from playing, even when we have those opportunities to have that emergent play. Well, that's sure what it feels like now. Uh, what happened this year, though, was uh, we had so many. We had plenty of those snow days. We had so many days like that. There were the, there was just no school because the roads were basically impassable, and the kids had lots of uh, free time. Now, uh, you know, they have to, you know, the way the school system works is they have to be in session for so many days. And they're in danger of not being session for enough days. And so now, now that's why they've gone to unlearn online learning, you know, or distance learning, whatever you want to call it. But just my experience with it has been uh, the participation level is low. The kids are still um, opting for that, you know, that playtime, you know, that other, that unstructured time. I just wish that they didn't have the phones in their hands and think that was play. Um, 
but they're still kind of voting with their feet not to participate in even the online. And somebody was suggesting to me today that one day that's what all of education will be. And I would say, well, at that point, there won't really be any education or it'll be for a very small group of people because it's, um, it's a methodology that only works for a small percent of the population, you know, and, and even for people who, who can do it, I would say it's still not the most engaging or interesting or fun. You know, that would even be a smaller number of people who really like that. So I hope that we never get to a place where, where, you know, school, for example, is, um, you know, is online all the time, you know, I mean, especially for children, you know, they just, they so express in so many ways that they have this, um, you know, they still have this joy of, of, of being alive. And I, and I would never want to kill that out of them or bore it out of them. And this brings us kind of to the point that you brought up about linearity. So, of course, there's, there's always this idea, this trope of uh, schools being an industrial model. But, but even going deeper than that, the linearity in school, the fact that it goes from grades 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and up, that's a linearity. The fact that skills are taught um, sequentially be they math skills, language skills, literacy skills. Um, there are standards that, that you also follow one after the other, making sure that, that you, you get it uh, age-related. How do we, it, it is so baked in our DNA to have this idea of sequentiality, um, especially in math, of course, in languages, but also in literacy to a large extent. How can we start to think or break a, a, apart these, these, uh, these entrenched, ideas and, and how can we start thinking about learning as nonlinear, as perhaps sequential, but in a nonlinear linear sequentiality? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I think that um one of the good one of the things that we're really lucky about is there still are some indigenous cultures in the world and they still have very nonlinear ways of um of learning and teaching and and relating and you know accomplishing uh tasks. You know, it doesn't always have to be you know, one step at a time or in that linear way. And so along with that would be other people who see the value in that. And those would be the people who would, um, you know, who, I guess to put it this way, with the population being as it is now, I would say the kids who encounter those kinds of educators and those kinds of schools are quite fortunate. Um, but at least we keep it alive that much, you know, in those small locations it's kind of like the fact that one one of the things ishmael points out is that at one point you know the entire world was indigenous you know this would be maybe going back around ten thousand years you know and what happened slowly over time is that you know more and more of the world became colonized until now the numbers have been flipped where the entire world was indigenous now the entire world is almost colonized those are two diametrical opposites you know um, but the way he, um, uh, he says in his, in this story, he talks about, he says, it's in your Bible, you know, and I'm at that point, you know, my ears prick up because I'm going, I've never, I haven't read the Bible, but it, when I, you know, when I have looked at it, I haven't found much that I valued in it, you know, just to be honest. And, <clears throat> and he pointed out that the story of, uh, Cain and Abel or is, um, and the myth of civilization um, 
beginning in the Tigris-Euphrates River, you know, the cradle of civilization. Uh, those, that's the same story, he says. He says that basically they began farming there and they, they gained control of their food supply. And at some point, then they started to outgrow the area they were living in because people started living longer and reproducing more because they had a reliable source of food. And once they start to outgrow their territory, they started to make war on others to gain territory, you know, so that they could keep growing and keep living. And he equates that to Cain killing Abel, you know. Um, <clears throat> so he says that that story is a that story in the Bible is a metaphor for the moment when uh, humankind lost their ethic of how to live on the earth. You know, that is, you don't overpopulate, you know. And maybe you don't even uh, store food to the extent that that they did, you know, since, you know, since Tigris Euphrates River or whatever at some point. So um, maybe there's an ethic in operation that says we don't need to take so much because there's always going to be some as long as we don't take it all, <laughs> you know. And um, anyway, so the interesting part to me was was that what he was saying in effect was that the Tigris-Euphrates River was not the cradle of civilization. What he did was flipped it around 180 degrees. And it, what he said basically was that it would have, instead of the cradle, it was the epicenter from which the fall of civilization spread. Okay, or the fall of indigenous civilization, if you want to call it that, spread. Okay, so instead of civilization's benefits being, you know, spreading across the world and making the whole world green or some myth like that, he was saying that what's really happening is the whole world is being colonized and there are just a few people left now who really know, a few cultures now who really understand how to live on this planet successfully. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, to me, if we can go in one direction, Perhaps we can reclaim our our morality, you know, and learn and uh, admit that we're not living in a good way. You know, come to a collective understanding, perhaps, and start to live. You know, maybe maybe it happens individually, but people start to realize that uh, we're we're literally killing ourselves. But the good news is we don't have to. You know, and going back to stories, that means we can. We can tell a different story. We can change that story. You know? So uh, Daniel Quinn talks about stories and the effect that narratives have on people. And so he says, you know, right now the narrative is that it's all about me. We are stewards of the earth. We own the earth. You know, we have dominion over earth. That's the story that people are telling themselves nowadays. But as, as we've done before, we could tell different stories. Our story could be that we're all related, for example. And, and even this idea of activism has a lot about this, about control, about domination, about being outside of the world, and by being able to, in many ways, play God. Play God in the way that we're going to try to change things. We're going to play with the clockwork rather than being in the flow and realizing that we're responding to the world. And our responses do matter, matter quite a bit, but that is different from trying to act on the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way you said that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, acting on the world and it's kind of an egotistical thing, right? We're going to change the world. We're going to be like God. And that was another thing that he said that was interesting. I don't know why I'm talking about his book so much today, but the other one he said was that he talked to, he divided the world into, I would divide the world into, as I have already in this conversation, like in indigenous or indigenous people and then colonizers. But he uses different terminology. He divides them into levers and takers. And he says the levers are the ones who live in the hands of God. And the takers are the one who believe they have knowledge of God. So the takers think they know God, you know, know his will, so to speak, you know. And the levers uh, leave that alone. You know, they live on the in the world. How, how does that play out in indigenous education? What what exactly, and this is clearly a topic that's way too complex for this short conversation, but what are some of the aspects of indigenous education that are different from the dominant forms of education? Understanding, of course, that to a large extent, there's there's still going to be connections there and, and it's not completely independent and, and there's still a system within a system. Well, I think for me at, at center school, what we did was number one was we created our own set of standards and they weren't, they weren't a linear set of standards. You know, the number one standard was that every kid um, uh, would believe in their self and would believe that there was nothing that they couldn't do if they decided to, they put their minds to it. We wanted every kid to feel safe and happy to, uh, you know, to love themselves, you know, um, those were some of the standards. And the other standards were that they would um, <clears throat> they would understand the, you know, the, what's the word, the essence. You know, they would be able to gather or live in or encounter the indigenous cultures, which were based on relationships. So, you know, one of the standards we had there was that we would have functional relationships among every uh, adult who worked there, there would be functional relationships. They would be respectful, but not 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 in a phony way, but genuinely respectful. We would listen to each other. We'd speak to each other respectfully because we understood that our relationships and the interrelationships among all of us in the school are literally the waters that these kids are swimming in. And so if they're swimming in clean water, they're much healthier, you know, the metaphor than if they're swimming in polluted water. So if there's jealousies and little cliques and hatreds and anger and people uh, judging each other and things like that, uh, not a good environment for the kids. And besides, many of them see that every day outside of the school and maybe even at home. So another standard would be that we all had to, at the very least, respect each other and, and really um, engage in that while we're there, because we understand we're contributing to the quality of the water that everyone there is swimming in. And so healthy waters, they heal, you know, they purify, they hydrate, you know, they nurture. And unhealthy waters poison and toxify, you know, and destroy. And so that's the metaphor. So that would be another standard, for example. Um, we also wanted the kids, or I maybe, maybe this is me and this, I was able to spread this out to others, but I wanted the kids to have access to a chance to um, learn and absorb their indigenous culture, their, you know, their cult, their um, heritage language, their culture. 
and access the, the wisdom there that is a life-giving force. You know, it teaches you that, for example, that uh, one of the simplest teachings is the teaching of the medicine wheel. And it's just that every human being has four parts, the mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional. And the teaching is that you, if all four are fed, then that person is balanced and healthy. And if some are not fed, then that, then that will create imbalance and illness. And so the idea was to, first of all, you know, take good care of our bodies, take good care of our minds, which is, you know, a little bit more challenging because many people aren't really very self-aware. And then being aware of that inner voice, that spirit, or that soul even, and then understanding that, um, how to access that, how to listen to it, and uh, to take the time to do so. You know, you have to slow down to do those things. You have to get out of this rapid-paced, um, acquisitional, acquisitionally focused kind of culture and slow things down and live instead of realizing that most of the things that we want, we don't need. And most of the things that we're encouraged to want, we don't need, you know, so slow down a bit and get to know yourself. Um, Bruce Lee has a great quote. He says, uncertainty comes from being unfamiliar. Um, get to know yourself better and you know our fear comes from uncertainty and that comes from not knowing yourself so get to know yourself better take the time you know to get to know yourself and once you know yourself then you won't feel so uncertain about yourself you'll realize that within yourself is everything you need you have all the tools and all the skills you know you can develop all the schools all the skills you need uh, to do whatever it is that you want to do you have that potential but if you don't believe that's true, then it's not going to be true. The same is for the idea of spirit. You know, some people would say, well, there's no proof of spirit. Scientists would even say there's no proof of it. And when I look at the, the you know, the world around us, I see nothing but examples of the, of the, you know, nothing but um, proof that spirit is a real thing. You know, I see it everywhere. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just me. But I don't think so. I think there are a lot of people who feel that way. The school I'm at now is more of a mainstream kind of a school. And so it lacks a lot of these things. I've tried to talk to people about um, the importance of, you know, the staff communicating to each other in a very um, functional way so that the communication is of high quality. Um, and for whatever reason, that is, um, that's, not happening. I mean, I, I'm not in, in charge of it here, so I don't get to direct those things, but it's not seen. It's not, uh, maybe people here don't perceive that because probably they have never um, experienced it before. They may not even realize that, that it's real. And I think that that's the case in a lot of schools. So it's a challenge to you know, the bigger the school is, the harder the challenge, you know, to, to get people to come together and to understand the importance of communication. And it's ironic, isn't it, that in education, which is based on, you know, sharing and transmitting knowledge, that people don't see the value of communication. And the standards are not based on communication. And that goes back to the relationality that we started talking about at the beginning, how that's learning and how the learning will be impeded without communication 
uh, and it doesn't have to be verbal communication, does it? It could be nonverbal. It could just be the communication we have with one another when we're not in each other's physical presence. Because those ideas and those those things have vibrate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dad was great at nonverbal communication. He taught me that, but he could look me in the eyes and he had these really dark eyes, but he could look at me uh, in the eyes and he could communicate. At first I would say, what? And he said, no, he said, I was just telling you, or I was just talking to you, you know? And then what he was doing was explaining to me that there is a way of communicating without words. Now that was his way of teaching me that. So, yeah, like you said, you know, there's, there's a, a lot more communication that goes on beyond just what's in print or, or what's, you know, transmitted over the, you know, through the air, you know, sound waves. There's a lot more. And people who insist on not being aware of it or ignoring it are wondering why they're sick or unhappy or why people are angry or why the communication is the way it is or why the relationships are the way they are. It's because they're refusing to acknowledge that other, that other form of communication that, that is happening, but they're blinding themselves to it. And I'm also very fascinated with this idea of spirit that you mentioned and uh, being a science um, uh, educator, also going back to this idea of, of quantum physics and entanglement and that the spirit could be this idea of entanglement and that when we're not together, we're still together because we're entangled because there's a, a certain amount of a yeah, I, super, I love it. superposition there. Um, yeah, for sure. So that it's not just like... Yeah, no, I agree. We're, we're responsible, responsible for the way we we are in the world when we're not together as well, simply because we're entangled. Um, and, and it's more than just talking kindly when we're in someone's face, but also thinking of them positively, or at least good intentions when, when we're not with them, because that reverberates. Yeah, right. Isn't that true? And yet, you know, there's people who think, oh, well, I didn't say anything to them while they were here, you know, even, you know, but I told them, I said, but if you're still saying, if you're thinking very negatively or even talking very negatively about them, it's still out there and it still affects them. And I just think uh, you just reminded me of the man who I thought for a year, for a European guy, I know it sounds kind of condescending, but I don't mean to, but for a European person, he seemed so in tune with um, that spiritual side of things was Albert Einstein. I just thought, when I read the things, some of his quotes and the things he says, I understand that he gets it, you know. Um, he said, uh, imagination is more important than knowledge, you know. He says so many things like that. And he talks about, you know, the quantum aspect of life, you know. And he talks about that. Um, and of course, David Bohm speaks of the implicate order, how everything is whole and how we make sense of the world, how we understand the world, how we create knowledge and mattering in the world through diffraction, which is also uh, related to Karen Barad, another uh, quantum physicist. And so when we look at this, it's, I mean, it's not like Albert Einstein was a pure quantum physicist by any stretch, but we're looking here at a number of scientists in quantum theory, the most proven theory in terms of experimental success in the history of science. This isn't just hippy-jippy stuff. This is based in cutting-edge science. Right, yeah. No, you know, he was just, um, you know, he was 
you know, he and his wife together were one, you know, one brilliant team, right? His, his first wife. Um, so they had the, uh, the mental aspect was incredible, but there was a spiritual aspect to him that I really appreciated, you know? And I think he had a kind of integrity, although he was like anybody else, he had his flaws and he wasn't perfect. Um, I really appreciate someone who gets it, you know? Um, yeah, he, um, I'm continually, every time I come across something that he said, I'm continually just impressed that he got those things. He understood those things. Uh, you know, growing up in that um, colonial culture for the most part, you know, but he was, the way he got them was that he was so um, intelligent, brilliant, whatever, you know, and even um, inspired maybe might be a good word, but he knew there had, had to be something more right and that is impressive you know because so many people turn a blind eye to that idea that there's got to be something more and most people go no this is all there ever is so if you ask a lot of mainstream thinking people what's the meaning of life they go well that's the great mystery isn't it and i don't think it's so much of a mystery you know um i think it was frank herbert there's a great quote by frank herbert and he said um the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve right it's a reality to experience. Well, listen, Joy, I, I really wanted to thank you for your time and for your insights and, and, and just, just your point of view is in your reminders. Really, that's what it is. It's a reminder, um, a reminder to, to come back. I, I, that's, that's how I'm taking it myself, how I'm interpreting your words and, and the words that are put out there are interpreted in certain ways. Um, and, and I don't know if, uh, if that's the intention, but that's how I took it, a reminder of, of that, that another story is possible and that it takes all of us to tell that story, or maybe just a few of us to convince the others to tell that story too. But nothing less will, will is enough. Yeah, the more of us that are thinking that way, uh, the better off we are. You know, the more of us that are living that way um, and intuiting, you know, perhaps the better off we are. I think the only danger is that, uh, that there's, you know, there are those who can't do those things, but who maybe. Um, what's the word, I guess, might be capable of, uh, you know, of deluding themselves into the fact that, you know, giving them credit for something that they're not doing. So thinking that they're for X, for example, understanding on a very deep level when in fact it's a very, you know, linear base kind of thought. And it's, it's not a, a very wide band, if you know what I mean. You know, there's not a lot of bandwidth there, you know. There's like one or two frequencies, not not a whole, uh, you know, not a whole mix of them, you know. Um, you know, like white light is a mixture of all the frequencies, right? Um, yeah, not that. <laughs> um, and I just think that maybe then the answer is that we take a lot of time to teach kids how to intuit or how to at least listen to their intuition, intuitions. Um, I know that Ojibwe elders would have told me when I lived in Minnesota that one of the things that they sometimes would do a long time ago was let the kids sleep in, let them sleep in. And the reason was they wanted them to learn how to dream. You know, teaching them how to dream, you know, and allowing them time to dream. You know, so maybe school is a little bit too busy 
um, for, you know, for some, you know, maybe the idea is that we take time to tell stories and teach songs and um, teach them a little, teach them um, a bit about ceremony and what its purpose is, you know, teach them to think coherently. And that is addressing all four parts of the human entity instead of just the mind. So that there's a balance and a health. And I just get paid. So there's a Milwaukee Indian school. You should look it up, by the way. And I'm not sure of everything that goes on there. But the one thing that I really appreciated about Milwaukee Indian school when I visited there was that they had this, they got a lot of money and they decided to build a new school building. And I can tell you right now, Benjamin, it is not a square. You know, it is not a, a box, an elongated box. The building is shaped like a snake. There are windows all over the place, and then the concept is bring outside in. No two classrooms are identical. Um, you know, every classroom has its own distinct design. So there's so much about that school, even in the construction of it, that's meant to impact young people's minds in a special way, you know? And the other thing I noticed when I was there was that everybody seems to love being there. So, yeah, if you ever get a chance, check out Milwaukee Indian School. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, for putting up with me. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out our articles and those of other writers on Intrepid Ed News, www.intrepidednews.com. Again, our website is www.coconut-thinking.design. We look forward to your comments. Subscribe to this podcast, give it five stars and so forth. And in the meantime, we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.